the underworld for the Greeks was that place that you could descend into and then you could come out with something if you survived, if you could figure out how to get out. You might have to complete some tasks down there and then you overcome these things and you come back to the world. So it's, it's a winter. Welcome to Gathering Gold, a podcast for highly sensitive souls. I'm Cheryl Paul, a counselor trained in the Jungian depth psychological tradition. And I'm Victoria Russell, Cheryl's niece and co-host. Today we are continuing our seasonal themed episodes with a very special episode featuring a very special guest who has been on the podcast before and who we were so excited to welcome today to help us really sink into the season of winter in a deeper way. In our last episode, we talked about meeting the darkness of winter and the coldness of winter, going into these short days and what it means to really meet that darkness. And sometimes what can help us to stay warm inside is to pull upon stories and myths that speak to our inner experience and also what we see when we look out at the world in this season of winter, when it seems as if everything in the natural world is asleep especially once the holidays are over and things have quieted down. What does it mean to be in this season of winter and what gold can we uncover in this season? So we are excited to talk about how we might pull from some myths and fairy tales, one in particular, with today's guest, Dave Finn, who is, of course, Cheryl's husband, and my uncle. And in this time of year when it's especially wonderful to spend time with family, to gather around the fire and tell stories, we wanted to bring a little bit of that energy to the podcast. So Dave will be digging into the fairy tale of Briar Rose with us. And Dave, I'm just so happy that you're here and so excited to get to dig into the riches of this fairy tale together. Well, thanks for having me uh, again on your podcast, and um, you know I look forward to diving in, and I, I hope I can uh, bring something uh, to the myth and you know to your audience today. So, when we were talking about what this episode might be, Victoria said, "I have an idea to continue on the themes of this time of year. I'm envisioning." gathering around the fire, so to speak, and being in that frame, that mindset, that framework of telling stories. And myths and fairy tales being our collective stories. And what would it be like to have Dave on? So Dave is my favorite storyteller, bar none. He is an amazing storyteller of his own stories and also other stories. And our kids have been so lucky to have him as their dad growing up telling them stories. So I invite you to get into that 
that mindset, that that sensibility of grabbing a blanket, making yourself some tea, maybe lighting a fire if you have a fireplace or lighting a candle and just settling in to this field of storytelling. Let yourself receive the story as we are going to read it out loud and just kind of notice whatever sparks and nuggets of gold um, spiral up for you. And I should just mention quickly that, of course, Dave is a very good, wise guide for this story journey for us because he is also a psychotherapist who has been studying using fairy tales and myths in service of our own inner work. So people should also check out Dave's Instagram. Is it follow your myth, Dave? Yes, that's right. Yes, follow your myth on Instagram. Okay, without further ado, we're going to sink into the story of Briar Rose. Okay, so uh, this version of Briar Rose is from the first edition of the Grimm Brothers fairy tales. And uh, I'll just dive in. A king and a queen couldn't have children, and they wanted very much to have one. Then one day, while the queen was bathing, a crab crawled out of the water, came on shore, and said, Your wish will soon be filled, and you will give birth to a daughter. Indeed, this is what happened, and the king was so delighted by the birth of the princess that he organized a great feast, and also invited the fairies who were living in his realm. Since he had only twelve golden plates, however, there was one fairy who had to be excluded, for there were thirteen in all. The fairies came to the feast, and at the end of the celebration they gave the child some gifts. One gave virtue, the second beauty, and the others gave every splendid thing that one could possibly wish for in the world. But just after the eleventh fairy had announced her gift, the thirteenth appeared, and she was quite angry she had not been invited to the festivities. Since you didn't ask me to attend this celebration, she cried out, I say to you that when your daughter turns 15, she will prick herself with a spindle and fall down dead. The parents were horrified, but the 12th fairy hadn't made her wish yet. And she said, the girl will not die. She will fall into a deep sleep for 100 years. The king still hoped to save his dear child and issued an order that all spindles in this entire kingdom were to be banned. Meanwhile, the girl grew up and became marvelously beautiful. On the day that she turned 15, the king and queen had gone out, and she was left completely alone in the palace. So she wandered all over the place, just as she pleased, and eventually came to an old tower where she found a narrow staircase. Since she was curious, she climbed the stairs and came to a small door with a yellow key stuck in the lock. When she turned it, the door sprang open, and she found herself in a little room where she saw an old woman spinning flax. She took a great liking to the old woman and joked with her and said she wanted to try spinning one time. So she took the spindle from the old woman's hand and no sooner did she touch the spindle than she pricked herself and fell down into a deep sleep. Just at that moment, the king returned to the palace with his entire courtly retinue, and everybody and everything began to fall asleep. The horses in the stable, the pigeons on the roof, the dogs in the courtyard, and the flies on the wall. 
Even the fire flickering in the hearth became quiet and fell asleep. The roast stopped sizzling, and the cook, who was just about to pull the kitchen boy's hair, let him go, and the maid, who was plucking the feathers of a hen, let it drop and fell asleep. And a hedge of thorns sprouted around the entire castle and grew higher and higher until it was impossible to see the castle anymore. There were princes who heard about the beautiful Briar Rose, and they came and wanted to rescue her, but they couldn't penetrate the hedge. It was as though the thorns clung tightly together like hands, and the princes got stuck there and died miserable deaths. All this continued for many, many years, until one day a prince came riding through the country, and an old man told him that people believed that a castle was standing behind the hedge of thorns, and that a gorgeous princess was sleeping inside with her entire royal household. His grandfather had told him that many princes had come and had wanted to penetrate the hedge. However, they got stuck hanging in the thorns and had died. That doesn't scare me, said the prince. I'm going to make my way through the hedge and rescue the beautiful princess. So off he went, and when he came to the hedge of thorns, there was nothing but flowers that separated and made a path for him. And as he went through them, the flowers turned back into thorns. After he reached the castle, the horses were lying asleep in the courtyard, and there was an assortment of hunting dogs. The pigeons were perched on the roof and had tucked their heads beneath their wings. When he entered the palace, the flies were sleeping as was the fire in the kitchen, along with the cook and the maid. The prince continued walking, and he saw the entire royal household with the king and queen lying asleep. Everything was so quiet that he could hear himself breathe. Finally, he came to the old tower where Briar Rose was lying asleep. The prince was so astounded by her beauty that he leaned over and kissed her. Immediately after the kiss, she woke up, and the king and queen and the entire royal household and the horses and the dogs and the pigeons on the roof and the flies on the walls and the fire woke up. Indeed, the fire flared up and cooked the meat until it began to sizzle again, and the cook gave the kitchen boy a box on the ear while the maid finished plucking the chicken. Then the wedding of the prince with Briar Rose was celebrated in great splendor, and they lived happily to the end of their days. Thank you so much for reading that with us, Dave. That was so fun. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. (laughs) When we asked you, Dave, if you would do an episode like this with us and dig into some sort of myth that spoke to the season of winter, I think this one seemed to come to you pretty quickly as a tale that carries wintry themes. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit first about why this one came to you as an especially good story to pay some attention to in this season. Well, you know, when you and Charlotte talked to me and asked me, and you talked to me about the theme of winter, you know, I thought, well, I don't know that there are a lot of fairy tales that I'm familiar with that talk about winter, but a lot of them talk about sleep 
and these long sleeps like Sleeping Beauty, which is what Briar Rose is, of course, is Sleeping Beauty. And uh, of course, it was re-envisioned recently by Disney as Maleficent and, and the sequel to Maleficent. So, you know, the story's been retold over and over again. So it keeps making its rounds through, you know, our collective culture for hundreds of years, if not further back. And so it's a story about um, how not just what I like about this version of the story is not just that it's about one person who goes to sleep, but that the whole kingdom goes to sleep. And then it becomes surrounded by thorns, like these huge hedge of thorns. You can't even see the kingdom. And when I was a kid and I read that, for the first time, I that just captured my imagination, and it's always I know where I was sitting when I read that story, and it's just always sort of uh, captured me. And so I think that that idea of when this one person goes to sleep, it sort of brings this winter, this you know thing to all of us, and that goes back through other myths that we can talk about. Um, you know, including things, you know, like Psyche and Persephone and even, you know, Parsimal. Yes, you mentioned that the Greek myth of Persephone is very much associated, obviously, with the seasonal shift into winter and then into spring. And it has these kind of connections to the Briar Rose story as well. So it kind of shows the way that these archetypes are woven throughout time and across stories, right? Right. Mhm. I'm curious what comes to mind for you in terms of the metaphor of sleep. What is it that an entire kingdom falls asleep for 100 years? Like to me, I think of it as and I also just want to say that when I this is so fun for me because it's like and I think for all of us we get excited about not just dissecting a text together and unpacking it but but specifically a myth or a fairy tale that it's that it's like a dream it's like a collective dream right and so yeah. to to look for the symbols and what are the archetypal symbols and this i love that this one captivated you as a kid dave i didn't know that and that you remember mm -hmm. exactly where you were sitting and and that there was specifically around this idea of an entire kingdom falls asleep because the way that it's been changed over time is that it's just sleeping beauty, right? That she's right. the only one who falls asleep. But but I loved that part of this original version as well. And to me, I always think psychologically, like what is it to fall asleep is to go unconscious, is to be unaware, is to lose your sense of consciousness, of of like the light of consciousness. And so what what is not being seen what what has fallen asleep what aspect of the human psyche um has fallen asleep that requires this masculine figure you know always played by the prince but we can understand it from a jungian lens as a symbolic lens of the feminine and the masculine and so it's through the feminine of this 15 year old who's just also on the cusp of her maturity, her sexuality, and of course the rose being this symbol of, of the goddess, the divine feminine, sexuality, fertility. 
And so there's all these archetypal themes in here and that she, she falls, it's through her pricking herself with a spindle. (laughs) And all the princes couldn't penetrate the hedge. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So there's so much here and I'm just curious what, where you both go or you go, um, Dave around these themes of, well, the first theme, I guess, around sleep, collective sleep. Um, collective sleep. So I think, you know, if you look at these myths or the fairy tales, which, you know, just are another form of myth, they go back to stories about, you know, psyche, psyche and heroes. And psyche was one of these first people, not the first, but one of the first mythical people to descend into the underworld. And the underworld is the, the Christian version of that would be hell, except the underworld for the Greeks was that place that you could descend into and then you could come out with something if you survived, if you could figure out how to get out. You might have to complete some tasks down there mm-hmm. and then you overcome these things and you come back to the world. So it's it's a winter. And for Persephone specifically, Persephone descends into the underworld. Um, she's actually kidnapped by, by Hades, um, the brother of Zeus, and she's taken to the underworld. And so she's prisoner. Now, when she's a prisoner in the underworld, her mother, she wants to do everything to get her back. And she's just about to be released when they find that the, the gardener rats her out and says, oh, she ate, I think, seven pomegranate seeds. And like even that, like symbolically, there's something like red and bloody about like that fruit in particular, right? Um, so, which is maybe about a loss of innocence or death, or like you can read different symbols into that. So she has to stay. But Demeter, her mom, is so pissed off. She destroys the crops. She freezes the earth. She is starving humanity. And so they come to a, a deal that they'll let her daughter come back into the, the world ab- above for half the year. And so whenever she goes back to Hades and she's the queen of Hades, then Demeter, her mother, makes it winter again. And that's why we have winter. So it's intermingled with this story of loss and grief and that struggle, but it's also a story about sort of coming into ourselves and self self awareness and individuation. So when we freeze and we go to that underworld and the whole kingdom is frozen, we are not moving forward. We're in the underworld. We're frozen and we are not getting out into that individuation. So in a lot of fairy tales, what I've found is that the stories sort of end, and this is sort of what makes fairy tales different for me than mythology, because in myth, the women often overcome the challenges and come back to the world enriched. In fairy tales, they're often saved by the prince, like she's saved here. She doesn't save herself. She is saved by the prince. Now, you know, Persephone was saved by her mother, you could argue, but in general, I think that there's more of an individuation process in mythology. It's interesting because from that Jungian perspective, like the way that you talk about dreams a lot, Cheryl, 
you can also read the fairy tale as every character is a part of the self, right? Yes. So like mm-hmm. in yes. in the fairy tale itself, it's one psyche and the king and mm-hmm. the 13th fairy and the princess and the prince are all part of the psyche and all a different part playing their role, right? Yes. And I love that because it takes it out of that realm of the prince has to save the princess, right? Which if we read it on that level is very problematic. But if we read it as all parts of self, like we would a dream, then we go back to, oh, the animus or the inner masculine is the figure of the prince and the feminine is the princess. And then you have this 13th fairy, which is very interesting to me, which was very interesting to some modern creatives in the story of Maleficent, which I thought was absolutely brilliant film. I mean, they were, it was so good. And it was really taking this idea that this was all caused by this evil 13th fairy and so then we kind of are back to this theme that we see throughout many myths and fairy tales and our entire Judeo-Christian myth and fairy tale that where we blame the woman, right? And for the fall, right? And so to look at the number 13 as um, it's a witch's number, it's a sacred magical number for, for women, for the feminine that has been turned into bad luck really by the patriarchy, as one more way to strip women of their power. So seen through one lens, we can blame the 13th fairy for the great sleep. But seen through another lens, we can ask, why didn't the king make one more place at his table for the 13th fairy? (laughs) Why did he only have 12 golden plates? So let's blame the king, because how rude to leave out the 13th fairy. Right? So the metaphor is really that there's no place for this powerful feminine. And I mean, come on. He's the king. He can't rummage up a 13th plate. (laughs) And why does it have to be a gold plate? They couldn't have found her a paper towel and been like, you know what? We didn't have a a 13th gold plate, but you can still come. It's like everything has to be perfect. And there's it, it really feels to me like, if we're all kind of considering this this fairy tale in our own lives, like what is that 13th part of us that we don't want to invite to the table? Mm. You know, like what yeah. is that 13th part that we're like, you're not allowed at the table? And then what happens in response when we banish that part? How does it yes. kick up dust in our face and make a really big stink about not being invited? Yeah, and to remind people like what happens in Maleficent, what happen- has happened in the the story before she curses the baby is that she's had her power stolen by the prince who becomes the king and he cuts her wings off and he takes them back to the castle and yeah so he assaults her and he steals from her and um her power like he takes her power right Mm -hmm. Yeah, so intertwined in in all these stories for me is often, you know, what I call the entitled prince archetype. And it's not something that other people talk about because they don't really want to identify that. 
And it's not that I want to like bash all these male counterparts in these stories, but I do think that it has an influence on our unconscious. And so I think that Disney kind of identifying him as the entitled prince, the bad guy, the villain of the story was spot on. And they, they did the same thing in frozen with, um, there was an entitled prince in that story as well, who was sort of conning, uh, one of the girls, I can't remember, um, which one it was, but you know, that entitled prince story comes back. So the, the entitled prince to me is somebody who thinks that he deserves, you know, certain things, beauty, wealth, and power are the main things. And they mention in this story, you know, one gift she gets is a story is, um, virtue. The second is beauty, you know, so beauty, wealth, and power are sort of like the trifecta of things that were valued back then. And honestly, they're still valued today. You know, Mm -hmm. we see this all the time, beauty, wealth, power. That's what people want. So it's, it's emphasized It's that drum is beat on again and again. And that's sort of why we have a lot of entitled princes in our culture. Um, So you're not going to find the good prince in this story. But if we, if yes, if we look at it like this prince is just sort of an aspect of her, that's better. But to me, it doesn't quite heal the fact that we need better prince role models in our stories. People like Aladdin, Luke Skywalker, those kinds of characters in fairy tales. You know, role models for boys. Yes, I love that because... You know, we can look at this through that lens of um, our tendency to blame women for acts of destruction, but that if you go back, it's actually the king, it's actually the patriarchy. But when I say that, I don't, I'm not blaming men, I'm blaming patriarchy, right? And this recognition that men suffer just as much under patriarchal rule and mindsets as women do, that people of all genders suffer. And so the fairy tale, it's the prince who comes to save the princess. We can see it through the metaphoric lens as the divine masculine. So in this very positive lens, but also what you're saying, Dave, is so important in terms of how about, you know, looking at entirely new characters that are not about, you know, power, greed, and beauty or whatever it was, wealth, Yeah, greed, beauty, yeah. wealth, and power. Yeah. Beauty, wealth, and power. I think greed is mixed in there. Yeah, um, absolutely. So that so that kids who are hearing these fairy tales of all genders have different role models. That, because yes, when kids are hearing fairy tales, it's probably going in on an unconscious level. We have to assume that, but also on a very conscious level. Yeah. Right. So we know the impact that Disney films, which is basically our modern fairy tales, have on kids and their self-concept, how they see themselves, what they think they're capable of, what their roles are or incapable of, and how desperately we need different male figures, like in Frozen, the other guy who is so fantastic. Kristoff. So Kristoff is like the, he cuts wood or he's like a, you know, he's he's got like a blue collar job and he's respectful, right? And so he, that's a great hero. Um, you know, when I, when I did my thesis presentation, um, when I graduated, I had to, I was talking about fairy tales and, and somebody asked me, so what are, who are the good male role models? And I was like, well, you know, 
because uh, I, I named like a whole bunch of female role models from mythology and fairy tales. And I was like, well, there's, God, it's just, you know, Kristoff and Aladdin and Luke Skywalker. So you have to start going into more modern tales to really find this story turned around. And I think one of the problems that you get from this old stuff that is it amplifies these old stories, beauty, wealth, and power. So it sort of puts men in a bind, a double bind, like you're in crisis. You're like, oh, I'm not, I'm nothing if I don't have beauty, wealth, and power. Hmm. And by the way, beauty is not that the male has to be beautiful, but rather that he has to possess beauty. Yes, he, he goes and he kisses the most beautiful woman in on the entire planet, and then she's his. That's all he has to do. You know, but he also has power and wealth behind him. And now he has beauty. He has a trifecta and he's one. Um, but that puts us in a crisis in, in our culture where men always are found lacking and, and, and women too, because all the women has to do is be beautiful. They don't have to, you know, get out of the fairy tale themselves. They don't have to find themselves themselves. So um, the fairy tales are definitely changing. You know, I track fairy tales through the ages, you know, from mythology and then through, you know, French fairy tales, Charles Perrault from the Perrault from the 18th century. And then the 19th century was where the brothers Grimm and they were always amplifying new values for people and, you know, new ways of, um, I don't know, not seeing the world, but just sort of how we should be in the world. And in this 20th century and mostly in the 21st century, we're seeing Disney kind of turn things around and amplify these new things, which is, is sort of, um, I don't know, refreshing, I guess. Mm. What do you think about the metaphor of the kiss that shows up in so many fairy tales, it seems, that why why does she have to get awakened? What is it about the kiss that breaks the spell? Do you have thoughts about that? So I, I do have thoughts about that, but I think some of that, like I hear um, my professor from art school talk about the different ways to achieve enlightenment. And one way is a slow way where you just years of meditating and years of working on yourself. And then the, the other way is sort of a flash. You hear the bell chime mm. and suddenly you're awakened, you know? And, mm. and so I think maybe that's what the kiss might represent. Just sort of that, that awakening, that moment of awakening, that moment of, of hearing and seeing, and suddenly you're awake to the world again. Mm. And you're seeing things in a different way. So it's a paradigm shift. You were asleep. The kingdom is asleep. Now you've just woken up. Mm. I love that. It does also seem too like if you are reading the story as these are all parts of oneself, it's that union or mm -hmm. reun reunion or union of these different parts coming together. And I almost think what's interesting is a lot of women would benefit from feeling a little bit more healthy entitlement. <laughs> like the prince and in like a patriarchal culture, there's a lot of really toxic male entitlement, but mm -hmm. women don't necessarily feel very entitled. 
So just that image of if this is oneself, mm. if you're reading it that way, the princess actually getting in touch with her sexuality, her desire, her healthy entitlement, mm. her her ability to act and be the be the rescuer. That's an interesting way to read it also, I think. Yes. That's similar to what I was going to say in terms of that moment of union between the archetypal feminine and the archetypal masculine and that they meet in the moment of the kiss, that there's that there's that union. And in Jungian psychology, that's a huge part of wholeness is that union of masculine and feminine. And in in the Kabbalah, it's it's everything. It's it's that we will achieve more wholeness as a species when the feminine rises up again, basically, and and meets the masculine in a balanced way, the healthy masculine, right? The divine masculine that has also been suppressed in these patriarchal centuries, millennia. Um, but what you're saying, Victoria, also that, that, so this happens when she's 15. She is left alone. It's like her cusp of sexuality. She finds some special yellow key. She goes up a tower. She meets an old woman spinning flax. She wants to try it. She gets poked by the spindle. Uh-oh. Sexuality, dangerous. Everyone falls asleep. She is, she is a rose. And then the entire kingdom is surrounded by the thorns, like entangled, like hands, these thorns. Nobody is going to get to her, right? And interesting that Briar Rose became Sleeping Beauty, that even that sort of really obvious metaphor, symbol for the feminine, for fertility, for sexuality, was kind of whitewashed away, right? She's yeah. not even called Briar Rose anymore. Dethorned, defanged. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But what an image to have an entire kingdom and this 15-year-old beauty sleeping in the center of it, right? But surrounded by thorns. Yeah, well, it's also the ultimate tale of sort of father protecting daughter too, isn't it? You know, from any, you know, right. from dating, like you will not date anybody. You know, <laughs> I'll lock you up in a tower. You know, yeah, um, yeah, with you know, thorns. Which is a re yeah, surrounded by thorns that nobody can penetrate. You will not be penetrated. You know, <laughs> so he's very determined. But that is a theme in these stories. And there is, unfortunately, you know, in a lot of these fairy tales, a, uh, you know, an, it's hard to say it's even an undertone. You know, there are pretty lecherous dads who desire their daughter. So there's mm. different versions of Cinderella where she is trying to stay away from dad, you know, the king who loves her. And then he starts to desire her. And now she's got to run for her life you know, which gets us back to Maleficent, who has her wings cut off. So she mm. gets her power taken away by a man who just can't control himself. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, some of the story. But I guess, I guess part of it might also just be that 
you know, maybe in our psyche, there's just something out of balance when we try to control the other sex, you know, when we try to control the feminine Mm -hmm. and is something that we've struggled with, of course, for a long time. Mm. Yeah. And also that image of trying to remove every spindle from the kingdom, it reminded Mm -hmm. me of this, I think it's like a Buddhist, like little parable. Uh, I think I heard Pema Chodron reference it once where it was like, basically the punchline is like, you could cover the whole village in leather so you don't poke your feet on rocks or you could just wear shoes. Mm. (laughs) Um, And it just reminded me of that, this idea of like, oh, we'll just remove every spindle that ever existed and that will protect my child Mm. as opposed to, I don't know, maybe teaching her not to like touch the spindle or, (laughs) or, you know what I mean? I mean, maybe that's oversimplifying it, but there was something about that image of like, I'm just going to remove all spindles from the world and that will protect her. That also really struck me as this thing that can happen either when a kid is growing up with an actual parent or something that, you know, we do with ourselves. Like when we're anxious about something and we think, I will just avoid it. I'll just find a way to avoid that thing. But of course. Yes. But I think that brings up a very good point. I mean, one of the things that you're saying is related to how we are with our kids, especially in American culture, where we uh, have a baby and they become a toddler and we cover all the plug sockets and we, you know, put bolts on all the cabinet doors and we make sure all the chemicals are out of the house and we pad the stairs and the corners of you know, the coffee table, and we do all that stuff to protect our kids. And if we could slow down the clock, talking as a dad now, whose kids are very much growing up, and one is already off at college, you know, is slowing that down. And what that sort of is sort of saying is that, in a way, the story is like, I've got, I just want to slow this down. I don't want my little girl to grow up. Mm. I'm going to keep covering the plug sockets on the corners of the coffee table and she's not going to grow up. We're going to freeze things right here. And this is the way I like it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Moana. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did write down some quotes from Moana too, by the way. Another fabulous modern. Another great film. Yeah. Yes. But it also reminds me of the story of the Buddha, Siddhartha, and the father protecting him from all of the pain of the world and creating this sort of fake paradise where death is out there and sickness and poverty and frailty and vulnerability, that is all outside the palace walls. You will not see it because it's all out there. And so to bring it into our inner world and being curious, again, with the 13th fairy, what is it, and the spindles and the protect, what is it that we say, nope, that that lives out there? And of course, we know from inner work and shadow work that pretty much whatever we say, nope, (laughs) that lives out there, it's going to find us, right? And maybe not in the most pleasant way. But one way or another, the thing that we are most afraid of. So maybe it's the sexuality of the daughter, or maybe it's death for and sickness and frailty for the Buddha. And what is and these are all places that do still that do scare us. 
And I mean, everyone's afraid of death if they're honest enough. And we would like to just pretend that it doesn't exist. And these things that feel vulnerable or feel threatening because of their power. And yet there's something in these myths that says, but it will find you, right? And you will wake up to this thing that you have tried to go to sleep from and avoid, go unconscious to. Yes. Uh, you know, and this brings me to why there's a sort of a difference between Disney modern um, fairy tales and these past fairy tales. Like I read the Brother Grimm story and I really like the Brother Grimm story, but I also have a, a lot of problems with the Brother Grimm story. You know, it does sort of freeze us. And what it is sort of saying is that we live in an unsafe world and I'm going to try my best to keep you safe and freeze everything and keep the men out. And, you know, and we're going to do our best to keep you safe, but it's not safe. It's really, oh, am I allowed to swear on your podcast? It's not, it's not, it's not safe Bleep. out there. Okay. But what happened to fairy tales over time? So you, you know, you have Peralt in the 18th century and the Brother Grimm in the 19th century, and then you have Disney in the 20th and 21st century, but somewhere in the middle there, there was also fairy tales changed. Now, you know, people who really study fairy tales don't really com consider these kinds of things fairy tales, but Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, you know, The Wizard of Oz. And there was something happening in fairy tales, and it started a, a while back. You know, when you get Hansel and Gretel, and Hansel and Gretel have names. I mean, I, I know that Briar Rose sort of has a name. It's like sort of a very symbolic name, Sleeping Beauty, you know, very symbolic names. But Hansel and Gretel, they have a lot of self-agency. And that's sort of um, a seed that's planted. And I always look at that fairy tale and I'm like, well, wow, that's sort of a remarkable fairy tale because they have names, they work together, they're not rescued by anybody, they have self-agency and they get out of what they're trying to get out of. And then you get to Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, who has, you know, the ability to go home the whole time. And you have Alice in Wonderland, who, you know, goes on her own journey into the underworld. And, you know, um, you know, and just those kinds of stories are sort of going in a different direction where instead of waiting to be saved, there's self-agency. And whether, it, you know, it's a boy reading those stories or a girl reading those stories, those characters are still really important because they're still speaking to and they're still holding a place for self-agency, whether you're a boy or a girl. So, you know, I think what could be problematic about those stories if somebody says, well, no, I mean, uh, Alice in Wonderland is a, a story for girls, you know, Wizard of Oz is a girl hero, you know, boys don't read that. And that's where we get into trouble again. But if boys and girls can read those fairy tales and understand that those are heroes for them too, like Harry Potter, you know, the fairy tales continue. And then they can understand that it's not sort of hopeless, you know, you're not just waiting to be rescued, but you have self-agency in your story and mm. you, you can help push the story to, you know, a different conclusion. Mm-hmm. I think that was one of my favorite stories as a kid, Hansel and Gretel. It was like such a, such an awesome moment when they work together and use their wits to they use their wit. Yes. Yeah. They use their wit to uh, 
basically make the old witch like fall into the oven, right? Yeah. Well, Gretel pushes her into the oven. She tricks her. (laughs) And (laughs) so- Go, Gretel. Yeah. Really awesome. And so, yeah, they use their wit, which by the way, is a different value. So it's not beauty, wealth, and power anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, The the villains in the story are mom and dad or mom and the stepmom, some versions that are, they cast the kids out because they can't feed them anymore. Um, But Hansel and Gretel are the heroes because they use their wit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not because they get beauty, wealth, and power. It's because they escape, you know, the trouble they're in. Mm. I wonder if there are any myths and fairy tales from the past or modern that are not so boy and girl centered that are, that are, are there any non-binary mm-hmm. more characters or androgynous Because, you know, we talk so much in Jungian psychology about the masculine and the feminine. I think we understand what that means from an archetypal energetic that all people of all genders have masculine and feminine energies running through us. But I'm just curious if you've ever come across that or Victoria, even in like literature or in any modern, like, does anyone, anything come to mind? You know, it's interesting. This isn't a fairy tale. This is more modern, but Virginia Woolf wrote a really interesting novel called Orlando that I read when I was in college. Have you read Orlando? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the character travels across centuries and changes Mm. form Mm. every so often. And Orlando is sometimes a woman and sometimes a man and sometimes androgynous. And, you Mm -hmm. know, Virginia Woolf, like, is known for her kind of fluid sexuality. She was married to a man. I think she really loved her husband. She also had relationships with women. I think she mm. wrote that novel kind of as a love letter to a woman that she loved. And that was a fairly long time ago. Maybe it came mm-hmm. out in the 20s. I can't remember exactly when, 20s or 30s. So um, mm. not that it's like a well-known uh <laughs> fairy tale or something like that, but a very interesting example of this very non-binary uh, approach to a uh, a main character, a protagonist in literature. Mm. Really interesting. Far ahead of her time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know that I know anything really directly, but I think Neil Gaiman would be the person who might be exploring this stuff. Neil Gaiman is sort of one of the inheritors of fairy tales, and he tries not to read any Joseph Campbell because he doesn't want it to pollute his sort of unconscious way that he writes. And I think that's really smart, a smart way to be. Sort of the opposite of George Lucas, who in writing Star Wars actually talked to Joseph Campbell about mythology and what he was trying to do. But Neil Gaiman, I think he does have sort of non-binary characters in the Sandman series, and I'm just not familiar enough with it to really Mm. know. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Is there anything else that stands out for either of you in Briar Rose? I mean, as we're talking, there's there's so much and I'm like, we could do a whole episode on Frozen and we could do a whole episode on Moana and these other, you know, modern stories that we've been drawing upon. But is there anything else here that you'd like to highlight? This is just a very small moment, but just at the very, very beginning of the story, we have, you know, the king and queen couldn't have children, mm-hmm. which is 
just that phrase alone. That's a whole story unto itself. Yes. And then the queen is taking is bathing and a crab crawls out of the water and tells her you're going to have a daughter. That's a wild <laughs> image. Yeah. But also just an interesting one because the crab is this creature that can live or I don't know where they spend most of their time, crabs, but they spend a lot of time underwater and on land, right? They can do both. It's this creature. So if we want to get like really out of the gender binary, we have this animal creature that can Mm. talk apparently that can spend time in the depths and come out onto the land Mm. and has this message of like, you are going to have a daughter. And it seems like this wise figure that as we started out talking about, Dave talked about Psyche and Eros and Persephone in the underworld. And the crab is like this animal that can go into the underworld and then come back up. And so I'm just kind of sitting with that image for just that very beginning image in the story and how much is contained in it and wondering about my own crab-like qualities. Mm -hmm. I am my uh, astrological sign is is a cancer, so that's the crab. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I'm thinking about, okay, where am I able to like go into the depths? When do I find that more? When do I find that easier and harder? And like, mm-hmm. what what messages might I have to bring back onto the land? Mm. Yeah, I think those are great thoughts. And I think one of the things you know to keep in mind about fairy tales is that a lot of the symbols that come up over and over are things about ice and mountains and water and water, you know, can very much represent the unconscious. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when something is coming up from the unconscious, you know, one way to read that is that the queen just knew she was pregnant and she got um, like an intuition and that sort of speaks to a woman like knowing her body and knowing herself and it's written in a way that sort of takes that power away from her a little bit. Like she has this insight and it sort of strips her a little bit of that. So Hmm. it could just be like a metaphor for how she knows something came up from the unconscious where it's just written unconsciously. And these writers just keep dipping back into that. But, you know, if you go back to psyche going down into the underworld and Persephone going to the underworld, one of the big things that, you always have to do to get to the underworld is you have to cross the river Styx. Mm. And that's the only way into the underworld and the only way out. So you have to go through the water, cross the water really in a boat and you, and it's, it's perilous, a perilous journey. And, um, and that's the unconscious. So you're crossing into the unconscious realm in those moments. And so that seems like she's, what you're talking about is she's getting a message from the unconscious. She's getting a message from part of herself, maybe. And, you know, it speaks more to maybe there's power in more than one person in this story. And maybe there's more story there that just isn't being told. Again, you know, the stories are very short, you know, and they sort of dip into this collective unconscious. People were telling stories. The Grimm brothers would go around. They would ask people, tell me, tell me your story. And then they tell the story and they collect the stories and they compile them and then they start to edit them. And so they start to leave stuff out and they start to amplify stuff that they want to tell. So any naughty bits, you know, that might get into sexuality, 
the Grimm brothers were going to leave out and um, and just stuff that they want to amplify, like beauty, wealth and power. They're going to maybe make a little stronger in the story. Mm. What stands out for me, based on what you've both just shared, which is so interesting, is that we never hear from the queen again in the entire story. She's in the first paragraph. A king and queen couldn't have children. The queen was bathing. And then that's it, right? From that, then the king takes over. He was so delighted by the birth of his princess and he organizes this big feast and he leaves out the fairy. And I mean, it does say the parents were horrified. But then again, the king still hoped to save his dear daughter and issued an order where the F is the queen? <laughs> and yet what did the king do to her <laughs> where is the queen and yet when we do hear about queens in other myths and fairy tales it's often the evil stepmother the evil queen the jealous queen and so again we have this disturbing problematic theme of the nice, kindly king trying to protect his daughter, but where's the queen? And so, like you're saying, Dave, there's probably more to the story that got left out, but of course the women's stories always got left out, right? It's still like, this is mostly the guy, this is mostly the king and the prince who come out, you know, shining in the story as the heroes. Yes. This was really fun. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much, Dave. This was lovely. Yeah. And and it was so interesting to really keep looking at this story through these different lenses of like, okay, yeah, we can read it as, as one self, one psyche, but it's really important to interrogate what these architect the, the real world impacts that we see when our stories take these certain forms and when we keep seeing, you know, women presented this way and men presented this way. And we need to keep interrogating the stories and evolving how we tell stories. And so just being yeah, able to, to look at it through all those different lenses is, mm -hmm. is really interesting. One of the things that I do when I read fairy tales and I write about them is I, I try to come away with the takeaway that I want people to have for a story. Mm -hmm. And so we know what Charles Perrault wanted. He wanted women to be virginal and pure. And we know what the Grimm brothers wanted. They wanted them to be sort of pure and Christian and virtuous. And, you know, Disney wants you know, women to start owning their power and boys to be respectful. And, you know, what kind of takeaway do you want your audience to come away from this with? Hmm. What do you think? Great question. Yeah. I'm going to go with the Disney um, hope that we take away that the woman's power is, is within her grasp, that that there is so much wisdom up in the tower with the old woman spinning flax. And um, 
you know, that that we as women are each our own beautiful rose and we get to decide what briar what thorns are around us not to vilify the thorns either that the thorns have their the thorns have their purpose um and that we get to decide when when to open those gates and so you know it could be read when we read all of the elements as elements of our own psyche as a very empowering and very hopeful and very beautiful tale. Yeah, that's that's really beautiful. Yeah, I think my mind goes back to what I said earlier on about who is the 13th fairy within each of us that we do Mm. not want to invite to the banquet of our lives who is that 13th fairy and why don't Mm. we want her at the table and what would it look like to make space for her and welcome her? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. And I just want to say a couple last things. Um, If anyone hasn't seen Maleficent, Moana and Frozen, highly, highly recommend all of those films. And I just want to thank you, Dave. Um, I'm, so impressed with you always, but being in this space with you and hearing all of this wisdom and these strands that you're drawing on and these historical contexts, and you are really a font of, of just a wealth of, of wisdom on this subject and um, just really impressed and in love with your mind as always. Thank you so much. Here, here. I really, I really <laughs> appreciate you having me on, and thank you for all that lovely praise. That's, you know, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> you cut me off there. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All right, I'm going to go back to chopping some wood now. <laughs> <laughs> with your reindeer pal? <laughs> yeah, with my reindeer pal. <laughs> Tosh. <laughs> Thank you to Jarrett Farkas for the use of our beautiful new theme music. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe or follow, leave us a review, share it with a friend, and consider joining our Patreon, where we share regular bonus content and also host virtual meetups. Visit patreon.com slash gathering gold to learn more.